0: hey folks this is kevin on this week's episode of risk you'll hear david who
1: daddy daddy i want to see some asses and titties let's watch porkies and all all the kids are laughing yeah the kid knows what he wants in life word
0: that and more but first folks wednesday march 24th we're doing something very special it's a risk community event called Common Core. You can join me and Risk producer J.C. Cassis and our friend Adrian Mulroney for a social event that we're hosting on Zoom of facilitated conversations. If you attend the Common Core event on Wednesday, March 24th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, you will have conversations with other Risk fans. It's a little bit like speed dating, but... Purely platonic. (laughs) The whole idea of Common Core is that these events guide people on skipping the small talk and getting right to meaningful sharing, kind of like you hear on the podcast, only in conversations with folks you'll be meeting for the first time. I have attended three Common Core events so far, and I have absolutely loved it every time. So come on out and socialize. Get your tickets at Risk. Dash show dot com slash tour. Now here's the show. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is the Christian McBride trio behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Some Kind of Love. These are three stories about love being shown in unexpected ways, and holy cow. Do we need as much of that as we can possibly muster these days? I can't believe, well, I can believe that yet again, we're reeling from racist violence again and again and again. Racist violence in our country. The anti-Asian bullshit, um, There's plenty of anti, uh, lots of folks, bigotry going around, but in the past year, especially so much anti-Asian hate. And, you know, there's two organizations I'd really recommend you look into. One is called Nonviolent Peace Force, and another is called Across Front Lines. You can find them on Instagram, at Nonviolent Peace Force and at Across Front Lines. These are wonderful organizations that teach folks how to look out for one another in our communities, our, our own well-being and mutual aid and making sure we're safe because we really do. We really have to look out for one another. It's super clear. But for right now, let's get to some stories about some kind of love. In a little bit, we're gonna hear from David who an anecdote that he shared with him. If you go to the risk page over at youtube there's a video there where i explain how you can send us an anecdote of your own but before david we're gonna hear from jamie Brickhouse. good to have jamie back on the show now this was recorded at one of our live streams and one of the first ones this was almost a year ago that jamie was on the show you can find him at jamiebrickhouse.com and here he is now with a story we call Mama Jean's Kind of Love.
2: Whoever said you can't get sober for somebody else never met my Texas tornado of a mother, Mama Jean. So when I came to in a Manhattan emergency room, after an overdose of sleeping pills. It was my alcoholic bottom. To the news that she was on a plane from Beaumont, Texas, I panicked. Stop her! I pleaded. Too late. She was already in flight. There was no stopping Mama Jean. Uh, I could already hear how she would greet me. She would point at the emergency room gurney that I was lying on with a perfectly sculpted red fingernail and scream, God! Damn it! I knew you'd end up like this, I just knew it! Her goddamits could shatter the cut glass vases in our house growing up. And she made a career out of loving me. Her all-consuming love for me cloaked me like a cashmere blanket in August. It was the crack cocaine of mother love. But I adored her. When I was growing up, she was like a movie star to me with her raven mane of hair done once a week to a tease and Rubenesque figure. She was Beaumont, Texas's answer to Elizabeth Taylor, and she never had a thought she didn't speak. She was every inch the star, self-made, image-obsessed, demanding with the patience of a firecracker, makeup always camera-ready, and almost always in close-up. So lying there on that emergency room gurney, I thought of one of her iconic close-up moments with 19-year-old me. It was the summer of 87. The AIDS crisis was in full bloom. Uh, She was in mourning because I had recently come out as gay. I had just spent my first year at a fancy liberal arts university. And it was my first year of freedom away from her, where I could splash joyously in the waters of boys, booze, and drugs with impunity. But I was back under her roof for the summer, and that was culture shock. I mean, to her, anyone who liked more than two drinks was an alcoholic. Drugs were criminal. And sex? (laughs) I can still see her reflection in the makeup mirror as she dispensed her motherly wisdom with a flick of a mascara wand. Remember, a moment's pleasure isn't worth a lifetime of regret. And... A stiff dick knows no conscience. But still, I managed to find some fun with a local guy. During the day, he taught ballet at Miss Dolly's School of Dance. In the evenings, he plowed me over that ballet bar teaching me moves Miss Dolly never dreamed of teaching. So after one of those ballet bar nights, I stumbled in drunk and wobbly through the back kitchen door. And there she was, waiting. I could make out the outline of Mama Jean in the shadows. Her bubble of hair was a perfect circle sitting atop the triangle of her floor-length, maroon velour zip-up robe, which was anchored by gold-slippered feet. Her hands were on her hips. Ready or not, here comes Mama. Where in the hell have you been? I, I was out with a friend. I know, and I can see you're drunk. Jamie... I've told you to watch the drinking. Mama Jean had been watching my drinking ever, ever since she caught me in a blackout in high school. How dare you keep me up at night when I've got work in the morning, work that pays for that car you drive so you can run the streets with no regard for me? And what friend were you out with? Carlos. Carlos Fitzpatrick de Navarro. That was the dancer's name. Who the hell is Carlos Fitz poo-poo? He teaches ballet at Miss Dolly's. She knew Miss Dolly, so I threw her that nugget to give him a tutu of respectability. It didn't work, so I decided to impress her. You know, he used to dance with a New York City ballet. New York? Have you heard of AIDS? Uh, Have you heard of safe sex? There's only two kinds of sex, oral and anal. Now, she forgot vaginal, but that was her problem. Whoosh! She left me standing there speechless. And just when I thought it was safe, she returned for a final showdown. She pointed a perfectly sculpted red fingernail at me and glared. You don't know what love is. That hit below the dance belt. I almost opened up my mouth and said, a stiff dick knows no conscience, right? but I shut up and I let her have the last word as she made her exit. And then I stood there, staring at the empty shadow she left behind in my fog of booze and sex and youth, wondering. I thought that her definition of love meant always doing what she wanted me to do, being her perfect little redheaded Jamie doll. But I was wrong. So uh, we moved past that night and after I graduated from that fancy liberal arts school that she paid for I moved to New York City with a push from Mama Jean to get into book publishing in the hopes that I'd become a writer. Ever since I was in junior high she'd been chanting the same mantra at me. You should be a writer. That's what you should be doing. But I wanted to be an actor. So I moved to New York and became a book publicist. Now... As the years went on, my career in publishing soared and my career in drinking went sky high. But after about 16 years, when I was 38, I'd lost a job, I had had sex with a dwarf, I'd lost a Persian lamb coat, a lot of mishaps. But by the end, I was pretty much drinking around the clock. And when you drink that much, it sinks you into a grand canyon of depression. Alcohol is a depressant. Most people don't remember that or realize that. And by the end, I had lost hope. I just thought I was done. And I grabbed for those pills. So I thought I could outrun her love through distance and booze. But now that i would hit bottom, she caught up with me. So she never had a chance to greet me on that emergency room gurney because after the emergency room, I was shot right up to the drunk tank and I spent a week in detox, at the hospital in lockdown. But when I got home to the apartment, she was waiting for me. Where she had been waiting ever since, she slapped on her face back in Beaumont and hopped on a plane. And even though it was 12 o'clock in the afternoon, she was still in her nightgown. <laughs> And she looked more terrified than I felt. Actually, I don't know how I felt. I was still numb. I was numb that whole week in detox. I mean, I was glad that I was alive, but I couldn't imagine what my life was gonna look like past that point. Well, that's not entirely true an old movie queen I envisioned that maybe they would just put me away in a nice sanitarium for the rest of my life and occasionally a, a good looking orderly and crisp whites would wheel me uh, down a gently a sloping verdant lawn where I would occasionally greet a, a visitor but I was wrong when I lay in fear of her reaction on that emergency room gurney because this time she didn't point a red fingernail at me and say I told you so Instead, she just grabbed me and hugged me for dear life. Her Jamie doll back in her arms. And at 38 years old, I have to say, I was glad that my mother was there. So she started to regain her dexterity when a psychiatrist friend came over and tried to clinically and gingerly explain the next steps for treating my alcoholism. Cut to the chase, doctor. Are we going to have to lock him up? The answer was yes. Then she pointed a perfectly sculpted red fingernail at me. Your drinking days are over. And by the way, it's a damn good thing you didn't succeed because suicide is a mortal sin. Otherwise, you couldn't spend eternity in heaven with me. So, off I went on my sober journey funded by Mama Jean. Now, now, About three years later, she started slipping away. Everything that she had been expert at, making money, driving, making herself look pretty, started to deteriorate. She drove her red Cadillac to the beauty salon and backed into the light pole. That wasn't the worst part. She drove there at Sands Pants. Her priorities were in order, but the execution was misfiring. So when she went haywire and lost her mind, hit bottom, if you will, I did what she'd done for me and I I hopped on a plane and I flew down to Texas to be by her side. And during that first visit in the hospital, I'm not even sure if she knew me. At one point she said, with your pretty red hair, you almost remind me of. And then she just trailed off. Everything she said that day lacked the one thing she'd never lacked, conviction. I turned away from her, my mind trying to erase what I had just seen. A mad woman in my mother's body wearing a, a worn nightgown, no makeup, and a crushed bouffant. And then she grabbed my arm in a vice grip. I turned around, and she was pointing a red fingernail at me and glaring like that night she declared, You don't know what love is. You've been drinking. The nail polish was chipped. No, I haven't. Don't lie to me. I'm not. I wasn't lying, but ever since rehab, I had been relapsing. And I was sober at that moment. Sober for five months. Uh, Seven months, actually. And I was struggling to finally get a year. But how could she know that? You better not be lying. Remember mama, that's all behind us. You don't have to worry anymore, you took care of that. And you know, I thought to myself, who would blame me if I drank over my mother losing her mind? But there was another way to look at it. God damn it! If you can't stay sober for yourself, do it for her. I turned and I looked her in the eye You don't have to worry anymore. Okay. But promise me. Promise. I promise. Five months later, she died and I finally got a year sober. I've been sober ever since. So she died knowing that I was sober with her help, but never knowing that she saved me one last time A year after she died and two years after I was sober, I enrolled in a writing workshop and I started a memoir about my two most defining relationships, booze and Mama Jean. (laughs) In her later years, when she would chant that old mantra, you should be a writer, that's what you should be doing. Like a cabaret singer, she would make a false exit and then a few seconds later return for an encore. But don't write about me. (laughs) until after I'm gone. And you know what? If she came back today and said, you don't know what love is, I'd answer, no, I didn't then. But I do now. Thank you. Wow.
1: Mom and Dad immigrated to New York from Hong Kong in 1970 for a better life. Mom was a homeworker, Dad was a waiter. Growing up, I never spent much time with my dad. He worked a lot of hours at a restaurant in Chinatown. However, on his days off, he always took me out to the movies. My dad does not speak English very well. I don't speak Chinese, nor understand it. What a perfect way to spend time with each other in silence at the movies. I remember when I was 7 years old, in the early 80s, me and my dad are standing in the lobby of a movie theater and I'm trying to decide what to watch. Bambi, Pinocchio, and this movie called Porkies. Porkies. What is that? I was so fascinated by the actual movie poster itself, the bubbly red letters against the white tile background, it reminded me of Chinese New Years, Porkies because it's the year of the pig And I see a woman's arm and leg And it was very provocative and intriguing It reminded me of the cover of Playboy magazines I would always see at my local bodega And out of the blue A bunch of older boys walk by us And they stare at the movie poster as well And they look really cool Where their button downs and their collars popped up And I hear them mutter Yeah! Asses and titties! Let's go see Porkies." And I'm like asses and titties what's that asses and titties sounds so cool and i look at my dad daddy daddy i want to see some asses and titties let's watch porkies and all all the kids are laughing yeah the kid knows what he wants in life word my dad on the other hand was as confused as me he had to do a double take on a movie poster and he looked at me with this frazzled look on his face and it's like no go see pinocchio You're like wooden dolls okay and all the older kids were like, yo, that shit sucks. You don't know what you're missing out on. And they walk away. That afternoon, me and my dad are watching Pinocchio. And I just can't stop thinking about asses and titties. It's killing me. And all I want to do is just curl up in a fetal position and die. Because I'm missing out on something great. And I tap on my dad's arm. And I'm like, daddy, daddy daddy I want to see some asses and titties please it's Chinese New Year's it's the year of the pig let's go watch porkies and my dad looked at me with a somber look on his face like wow my son is really interested in Chinese New Year's and he's like okay okay let's see asses and titties and we sneak into porkies I remember the theater was pitch black it's silent and I look at the movie screen and there's a scene in the movie that was actually pretty scary. I see a bunch of adolescent white boys in gym shorts and t-shirts lurking around in what appears to be the boiler room of a building. And they walk up towards a wall and there's a hole in it and stare through it. And all I see is naked girls, wall to wall, lathered up in soap and taking a hot and steamy shower. It felt like I was walking through a car wash full of asses and titties and the whole theater just goes buck wild. Yeah, As in Titty Central, woo! It was so overwhelming and barbaric. I had to put my hands over my face, and I tell myself, okay, I'm gonna force myself to watch it, but it was just too painful. I felt like I was taking my medicine, and what I do is I wrap my arms around my dad and squeeze him as tight as I can. I'm like, Daddy, I wanna go home. My dad was like, okay, okay, let's go. We rush out of the theater, and I feel something wet in between my legs. And once we exit, I look down, and I see this huge wet spot in the crotch area of my pants. And I see the kids from earlier in the afternoon at the concession stand. They look at me and my dad, and they stare down, and they're like, yo, that motherfucker busted a nut! Ha ha ha! And I just turn beet red. Although I never spent much time with my dad, and there was a language barrier between us, it was obvious we both did not know what asses and titties were. However, we had an idea based on what we saw and heard that afternoon. It was a brief and embarrassing moment between a father and son.
0: This is risk. this is Rose Royce behind me now with the song Car wash from the 1976 movie Car wash. I would have been probably around about the age that Dave who was when Porkys came out when Car wash came out uh, I never saw either film though and uh, we I'm sure I'm sure that Car wash is a better movie. <laughs> than porkies. Uh, we just heard from Dave Who you can find him on Instagram at Dave Who718. That's D-A-V-E-H-U 718. That one was edited by John Lasala. And in case you missed my saying it before, I just want to remind you that the social event that risk is hosting is this Wednesday, March 24th. You can meet other risk fans in a facilitated night of conversations on zoom. You can find the community gathering. If you just go to risk dot show.com slash tour to get your tickets. Folks, if you like good old fashioned true crime mysteries, Our final story this week comes from Theresa Miller. Now, this was recorded in Los Angeles back when we were doing shows in theaters live in front of audiences. And it was funny because we didn't get the audience mics working that night. But people are now so used to hearing risk stories without an an audience. And we're like, yeah, screw it. We can run Theresa's story now. The, the audio is something that everyone would be quite used to at this point. So it's a thrill to be able to run this one now. Uh, Theresa can be found on Instagram at the Divine Mother, uh, with M U T H E R. And here she is now with a story we call In Everyone.
3: About a year ago, I was diagnosed with antenatal depression, which is depression during pregnancy. And it was probably one of the hardest times in my entire life. It was the only time I had experienced an almost complete lack of faith, which was very new for me and very, very scary. So, when I was 14 years old, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. And I was usually on medication that worked fairly well. But the antidepressant that I was usually taking was risky during pregnancy, so I opted not to take it. And in addition to being completely unmedicated, I was also isolated. I'm originally from Chicago and all my friends were back in the Midwest. I hadn't really made any friends since coming to LA because even when I'm feeling normal, I'm introverted to a fault. Basically, when I'm depressed, I become an island and I retreat into the dark recesses of my mind. And that's where my negative thoughts rule. So something very small can get very big, very fast. For example, when I was 20 years old, I had this intense fear of insects, caterpillars in particular. It turned into like full-blown agoraphobia until my mom took me to this 10-day meditation retreat, which might surprise some people who knew that I grew up in like a very devout Christian household. But my upbringing could be described, I guess, more like um, God-centered rather than Jesus-specific. So things like Meditation retreats and like burning patchouli in your tie-dye pants and, you know, creating good energy and things like that. Like it was a sort of like Oprah-friendly Christianity. Um, So basically, like that's what I grew up with. She preached this version of spirituality called oneness in which God and the human spirit were one. And so I was taught that I brought God everywhere with me. And so when I lost that connection to God, like I felt this special kind of emptiness that comes with losing a divine part of yourself. In addition to that emptiness, I was also trying to make a relationship work that was very new for me. We were dating for five months before I got pregnant. And even though we knew then, as we still do, that we want to spend our lives together Trying to navigate a new pregnancy and a new relationship, as you can imagine, is extremely difficult. And we were finding each other's faults and habits at an alarming rate. Um, It was actually really horrible. I um, did try therapy, but I'm a really hard fit for therapists. I can find something wrong with all of them. The first one, I felt like he talked way too much about himself and his own philosophy. The second one I suspected was a hardcore Republican. Granted, that's only because she had an American flag printed on her business card, but black people don't like shit like that. So I just like, I was gone. Um, Another one, like he had this huge office and he sat way on the other side of it. And he was so far away from me that I had to yell my trauma and screaming things like, I don't like it when guys look at me when I come. Isn't great for your self-esteem. So when I get in a depressive uh, episode, like ritual and routine is really, really good for me. Like it helps me to keep my foundation, stuff like going to school and um, like having a nine to five job. But at that point I was done with school and like we had decided that during my pregnancy, I would stay home. So I was a homemaker with no kid. And that's like the opposite of a nine to five job. There's like no structure whatsoever. I always woke up after 12. It it was awful. And so there was basically nothing kind of holding me down. So I didn't like float away. And I could, I guess, use my religion for structure, But I'm Protestant, I'm not Catholic, and we didn't have any like sacred rites or rituals or anything like that. You're just kind of sort of, you're supposed to leap off a cliff into God's like metaphorical arms. So that wasn't working for me at all. That was like a really hard time for me. And I thought to myself, maybe God doesn't exist because I'm clearly in distress all day, every day. I'm praying, my friends are praying, my mother's praying, and like nothing's happening. If anything, I'm getting worse. So if God does exist, maybe he just hates me. So after that, I figure, okay, so I have to do something drastic here to save my faith. So I I made this last ditch effort to sort of see if God existed and also save myself I decided to write to seven churches around the country and ask for prayer. Yes, it's a very good idea. And at this point, like I said, I wasn't even sure that God existed. And so I'm like, okay, everybody's God is up for grabs. So I didn't just write to Christian and Catholic churches. Like I wrote to um, mosques. I wrote to Jewish temples. I wrote to a Baha'i temple in LA. And I was really careful. In constructing this letter, right? Because I wanted it to seem desperate enough so that they would pray for me, but like not so desperate that it would set off any alarms. So, like suicide not really suicidal, like just kind of like a, a sprinkle of hopelessness over the letter, you know, like a light mist of perfume. Um, something like, you know, my faith is wavering, uh, not sure what to do, can you please pray for me, yada, yada. So about two weeks pass, and I get a knock at the door. So I waddle my pregnant ass up to the door, and I open it, and there are two police officers standing there. One is this, like, giant redhead lumberjack-looking guy, and the other one is this tiny little woman who's, like, two inches shorter than me. And I clocked the danger of the situation immediately because I'm a black woman at home, pregnant, and there are two cops at my door. And I'm like praying that they don't realize that the screen door has no lock. And so they're like, "Um, hi, what's your name? And I'm like, "Uh, Theresa, why? And the little one looks at my belly and she goes, your name's not Margaret? And I'm like, no. And she goes, do you know anyone named Margaret? Margaret. And I'm like, no, why is she asking me this? And then I think, oh, yeah, my middle name's Margaret. And that's the name that I put on all the return addresses because I put return addresses because I'm an idiot. Um, but I did it because, you know, maybe they wanted to send me gifts or something, you know. I didn't want to begrudge them that. I was being humble but smart. So, um, I still didn't know why they were at my door, so I didn't tell them that information. And Lumberjack Guy tells me that Central Synagogue in New York contacted the police and told them that they received a very distressing letter from someone at this very address. So my heart stopped. I did not know what to do. They said that they were there for a wellness check. And I was like, oh, my God. I was just frozen. And they asked me if they could come in. And just to let everybody here know, you don't have to let the cops in during a wellness check. But I did, number one, because I didn't know that at the time. And number two, I wanted them to see that I was a fine, normal pregnant lady. I'm just very normal here in my home. I don't know what you're talking about. And so, you know, I didn't want to act guilty and tell them that they couldn't come in. So... I open the door to them and they come in and trailing behind them is this woman no older than me with a clipboard flashing this nervous smile. And they say, oh yeah, and this is Michelle. She's a social worker. And I'm like, oh my God, in that moment, I'm mortified and I notice my appearance right away. My hair is all over my head, my robe is tattered, and it has food stains all over it. My apartment is almost completely devoid of furniture because we had just moved in. I look like I had stepped away from sticking my head in the oven to answer the door. Um, I absolutely fit the description of a suicidal pregnant lady who would write letters to churches around America begging for prayer. She asks me if uh, she can ask me a few questions and we sit down and the three questions I remember are, have you ever hurt yourself? Do you ever think of suicide? And is there abuse going on in the home? And the answers are yes, yes, and no. But the answers I gave her were no, no, and no, um, The police were, like, a foot away from me, okay? They were breathing down my neck. And so that sort of sent me into a panic. I had no idea what was going to happen if I told the truth. Like, what if I told her that, yeah, I actually am completely despondent. I need help, like, right away, you know? Maybe they would take me away and send me to the hospital, which has happened to me before. I actually had this very, very tiny nervous breakdown a few years ago and checked myself into a mental hospital. And it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, all your rights are taken away. You can't call who you want, when you want. And um, they put me in a room with a paranoid schizophrenic They drugged me with Ativan the entire time, which admittedly was kind of nice because um, it made me less aware of what my roommate was yelling at the walls. But it was terrifying. And the psychiatrist on call made it worse because he would do checks every single day. And no matter how I sounded, no matter how pleading my voice was, he would barely look at me and he would never emote. So whether I was crying, no matter what I was doing, he was exactly the same, this kind of like emotionless, very distant doctor. And it was awful. And that was a voluntary, you know, I checked myself involuntarily. And so if these people found out that I was a danger to myself and it was an involuntary hold, like, what were they going to do? Like, you know, were they going to ever contact my family? Could I get out when I wanted? I had no idea what was happening. I was Martha fucking Stewart the entire time. I just tried to convince them that. You know, the letters were a result of a little bit of pregnancy madness, but I was completely fine and normal, just to let you know. And I could tell that they weren't buying it. Um, The police kind of got bored eventually. And so um, they kind of just half-heartedly told me to take care of myself and they stepped out. The social worker, she got up and she had this pamphlet that she gave me and she got a little bit too close to me and she implored me to use the techniques in it. And it was this pamphlet with crisis numbers in it and grounding techniques. And, you know, (laughs) I could tell the way that she was looking at me that she knew that she had probably interrupted me crying into a box of cereal or something like that. And in that moment, like I really wanted to tell her that I was scared for myself, that I was extremely depressed, that I was suicidal, and that I I needed help, that I didn't know what to do. But again, I had no idea what would happen if I did that. I didn't know her. I didn't trust her. And I was home by myself. And so I just told her, thank you. And she left. I opened the pamphlet and I actually recognized the grounding techniques from therapy that I had had years before. It sort of prompted me to go look back at my booklet that I had gotten when I took dialectical behavioral therapy. And those techniques actually work and they worked before. But in my depressive haze, I had sort of forgotten about that. I forgot that they worked. I did start practicing them, and they did help to lift my mood, and I realized months later that that was the help that I was praying for, that was the help that I was asking for. Today, I do have a very sweet eight-month-old boy who's very, very happy, and my partner's an excellent dad, but I realized that I was looking for something magical to happen when I prayed. I was looking for God to just sort of like, I don't know, sprinkle something on me and I would automatically feel better. But I'm reminded that my mom taught me that God is in everyone. And God probably thinks that like therapists and medication and social workers are like pretty cool. Um, So, you know, I'm reminded that sometimes when we ask for healing, he sends a doctor answered prayers can be as practical as that. And sometimes we find God in some very worried Jews who are freaked out by your weird letter. (laughs) Thank you.
0: For this week's episode folks this is Broken Bells behind me now and we just heard from Theresa Miller who can be found on Instagram at the divine mother mother with a u The next risk live stream is on Friday April 16th at 9:30 p.m. Eastern tickets are at risk-show.com/ And the latest Patreon bonus check-in is a conversation between me and Amy Salloway. Amy's story, The View from Site B, was just rerun last Thursday, and this check-in was such a great conversation. There's so much bonus content at patreon.com risk. I have to give a little shout-out to our latest Patreon member, Alan Gluck, We always give a shout-out to anyone giving $25 or more per month. Thank you so much to Alan. Your donations, folks, over at Patreon are so crucial to keep this show running. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. All of our storytelling workshops and classes can be found at thestorystudio.org. Online group workshops, uh, video workshops you can take in your own time, and corporate workshops are all to be found at thestorystudio.org. And if you'd like to hire me personally for storytelling training, I'm at kevinallison.com. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. We're At Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at TheKevinAllison. Folks... Today's the day, take a risk.
4: Hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. I- Verha, ah, ah, Yeah. 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 <Shine on air> Uma, Yeah. Sikaka. Yeah. 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 yeah.